Well, good morning, church. It is good to be here with you today. What a beautiful morning it was this morning, right? Beautiful sunrise, the weather, absolutely gorgeous. This is our last Sunday with our memory verse from the book of Psalm, uh, chapter 16, verse 8. So let's go ahead and say it together as a congregation this morning. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Psalm 16, 8. We began last week a new series that we titled Seven Habits of a Healthy Christian Community. And as we work through this series together, we're keeping in mind that we're taking each of these habits off of the trellis that we use to kind of prioritize our ministries here at Calvary Monument Bible Church. And as we continue to go through, we have these considerations that we're keeping before us as well, that these are habits that are guiding and focusing the ministries at CNBC. Each of them are important. They were exemplified by Jesus. They were practiced in the early church. Uh, they are habits that are good for Christian communities throughout the world. And in different contexts throughout the world, each of these habits may be understood and applied a bit differently. So last week we looked at worshiping 24-7, and this week we turn our attention to hospitality. And as we begin to think about hospitality this morning, I found it very interesting that on my walk today, I had a first-time experience. First-time experience. I've been going out in the morning around 5 a.m. to do a four-mile walk for over a year now, And this morning, uh, normally I'm entertaining rabbits and cats along the way. That's usually what I see, quite a bit of rabbits and cats. This morning I saw an animal, as I neared the cul-de-sac, run out in front of me and cross the street. And I thought, that doesn't look like a rabbit. It doesn't look like a cat. And it certainly doesn't look like a possum, although it kind of moved like one. And as I got closer, unfortunately, you know how a cul-de-sac works. You keep going around, and the animal thinks it's getting away from you, but you just keep going around, and it's not really getting away from you. And so I kept getting closer, and it kept running, and I got closer, and it ran. And finally, it looked at me and darted up on the porch of the house and turned around, and there was a light on the porch. And for the first time, I could see it was a skunk. (laughs) And I thought, well, how interesting uh, that this morning, and and that, again, uh, this happens often, these God appointments and these uh, God activities and events. Uh, I wanted to open by thinking uh, about skunks and porcupines. Skunks and porcupines, as we consider hospitality this morning. Now, there's a difference between the two animals, right? I mean, more than one. But when we consider a porcupine, we look at a porcupine, here is an animal that most of us, when we look at it, we know we don't want to go near and touch. I mean, everything on the outside of this animal is screaming, stay away, stay away. I am a scary animal that can hurt you very badly. So we stay away. I don't know anyone that has a porcupine as a pet. Maybe some of you do. I don't know anyone. Now, a skunk is very different than a porcupine. If we don't know about a skunk, a skunk on the outside actually looks rather attractive. 
Maybe even some of us would say, dare I say cute, maybe? A little black and white fur. But any of us that own a dog probably have come to know that on the inside, there is something that exists inside a skunk that screams equally as loudly, loudly as a porcupine, stay away, stay away. And there's not much of a remedy for that odor as well, as you know. And sometimes I wonder if in our world and if in our culture today, because of the way that things are going in the world and the polarization that we're seeing, if we are being encouraged to turn into porcupines and skunks. And so I want to look at this concept of hospitality today, and I want to challenge us to think about hospitality perhaps differently than we have in the past. So before me, uh, we have all these pictures on the screen of various different kinds of houses. Some of you look at those houses and you think, well, that's too much of a house, or that's too little of a house, or that looks like it's too urban, or that looks like it's too rural. How about the hut? A lot of times I'd love to just live in that hut <laughs> in the middle of nowhere, free from all the distractions of the world, right? My wife said I'd get bored after a while. But, you know, sometimes it just seems like really, really attractive. When we hear the word hospitality, we a lot of times think about our homes, our houses. Sometimes we think about a various room or a various place in our home. And so you see different images in front of you. My grandmother had a place in her house. It was called a sitting room. And guess what? No one was allowed to sit there. I never understood never understood. But every time I sat in the sitting room and it wasn't time for an official family picture, I got in trouble. Weren't supposed to sit there. Weren't supposed to go in there. In fact, sometimes I wondered if I even looked in there, if I was going to get yelled at. I mean, it just was so decorated beautifully. The, the carpet on the walls, it wasn't carpet, but you know, that old wallpaper that was fuzzy, all that kind of stuff. I, there's the name for it. But I want, to, I want to invite us this morning to think about hospitality in a very different light. As we explore hospitality in God's Word today, we're going to unpack two questions. The first question is this. How does Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan characterize the essence of hospitality? And the second question, what qualities might exist in Christian community that is, that in a Christian community that is committed to both pursuing and receiving hospitality. If you have your Bibles today, or if you have a device that has the Bible on it, I'd ask you to turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9 and Luke chapter 10 today as we explore further this concept of hospitality. And before we begin to look at the text and set the table, let's take some time to pray. Father, we do thank you for your word this morning. We do desire uh, to be a community that's committed to both pursuing and receiving hospitality. And Lord, we recognize that both of these are important qualities. But Father, it is hard 
in the world today. It's hard uh, because of the influences uh, that exist in the world. It's hard for us to understand and to embrace and love those who are different than we are. It's hard for us to recognize that right next door to us in our own communities may be someone that comes from a very different part of the world. And yet, Lord, we understand that you have placed us where you've placed us with great purpose. And you've called us to love and to share the good news of your gospel with those that you bring into our lives each and every day. And so, Lord, we understand that learning how to love is something that's going to be a a lifelong endeavor, a lifelong commitment. It's something that you are going to have to grow in us as we work together to uh, study your word and grow in community with one another. And we ask for your help this morning. Lord, we thank you for the example and the testimony of Jesus. We thank you for this parable that he uses in the context that leads up to it and the context that immediately follows it. And we just pray as we look into your word this morning that you'd bless this time, that you'd use your word to motivate us to love like Jesus loved and live like he lived. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So there is a recurring theme in both Luke's gospel and in Acts. And more so than in the other gospels, it is the theme of hospitality. Now, Luke was one of the most well-educated and well-traveled of Jesus's earliest followers. He was born in the city of Antioch. He traveled throughout Jewish towns and communities with Jesus, and he traveled throughout the Roman world uh, until his death around 84 AD. Luke was a physician. In fact, Paul called him the beloved physician. And as a physician, he would have been in many different homes, caring for the needs of many different kinds of people. There are many accounts in Luke's gospel and entire portions of Acts that highlight hospitality. In fact, one biblical commentator makes the following observation regarding Luke's gospel. He said this, In Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal or coming from a meal, end quote. And we see this from Luke 5, where we find Jesus eating with sinners in the home of Levi, all the way to Luke 24, where we catch Jesus eating fish with his disciples. And in between, where Jesus is giving parables, describing large banquets and finding himself at dinner parties with tax collectors and sinners, as in Luke 15. And so we see that Luke, more than any of the other gospel writers, emphasizes this habit of hospitality as a way for the people of God to carry on the work of God in the world that God has planted us in. And beyond the work in his gospel, Luke carries this concept of hospitality into his account of the early church, which we have titled and see as the book of Acts. Both pursuing Uh, hospitality and receiving hospitality from others are important components for the church to embrace if it's to shine and serve as salt and light within the world where God is establishing it. And so further reading in your note guides, if you have your weekly with you this week, you'll see there's a note guide in there. There's some further reading for you in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, and Acts chapter 9, verses 43 to 1048, where you can see further these concepts of hospitality fleshed out in Luke's writing. 
And so as we move back into Luke's gospel, uh, looking at our primary context, we begin in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus is preparing to send out his 12 closest disciples to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And as he sends these disciples out, Jesus is emphasizing to them that they will need to rely on the hospitality of others in order to carry the good, the good news into communities that have not yet heard or received it. Look at Luke 9, verses 3 to 5. Jesus said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter... Stay there, and from there, depart. And wherever, you do not, and, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so as Luke chapter 9 continues to unfold, one of the realities that Luke uncovers is that for some of the disciples, they came to places where they were received and welcomed and loved and the message was heard and understood. But others faced obstacles and difficulty. And if you remember, it's in chapter 9 where Jesus reminds the disciples that the work of discipleship is difficult work. He uses the image of the cross. It's a symbol of death. And he's using it to remind the disciples that sharing the good news of Christ and taking the message into the world is largely summed up in the act of laying down our lives for one another. You see, the reality, friends, is that the message of the kingdom upends commonly held power dynamics of the culture. In the politics of God's kingdom... It is the least who are now perceived as the greatest. Continuing in chapter 9, Jesus starts to push back against these attitudes of pride that would keep his disciples from both pursuing and receiving hospitality. You might remember the account. There's somebody outside of the immediate circle of disciples, and this person is out, and he's casting out demons, but he's not doing it as one of Jesus' disciples. And so the disciples say to him, Jesus, should we stop him? Since he's not one of us. Verse 50 of chapter 9. Jesus said to him. Do not stop him. For for whoever is not against you. Is for you. It's correcting attitudes of pride. And then finally. When the disciples face rejection. And a lack of hospitality in Samaria. Now hold on to that city. We looked at that town last week. In our first uh, message, it comes up again this week. So they go into a city of Samaria, and we know that there was hostility between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. When the disciples and Jesus go in, they're not received, they're not welcomed, they're treated poorly. And so the disciples say to Jesus, this is very interesting, that's where their minds go, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? Now, I don't know about you, but the last time I was rejected and not received well someplace, I didn't think about that. That, again, illustrates and highlights the hatred between these two groups of people. It was an attitude that Jesus quickly and sternly rebukes because it's a wrong posture and a wrong attitude for his disciples to have towards people who oppose them. 
You know, Jesus knew that these postures and these attitudes came from a place of fear. And for a disciple of Jesus, love must always overcome fear. And so chapter 9 closes with some practical considerations regarding the challenges of discipleship. Truly committing to and living out the message that we are to proclaim in the world. And as we move into chapter 10, we're zooming in even closer to our primary text today. We find that outside of the 12, there was at least another 72 more that Jesus appointed and sent. And once again, look at the instructions that he gives this group of 72. Look at verses 4 to 7 and listen to the similarities from the beginning of chapter 9. This is Luke chapter 10, verses 4 to 7. Jesus says this, Do not carry a money bag, a traveler's bag, or sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whenever you enter a house, first say, May peace be on this house. And if a peace-loving person is there, your peace will remain in him, on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that same house. In other words, don't go hopping around just because you don't like the accommodations there. Stay in the same house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the worker deserves his pay. Do not move around from house to house. In all of this, the beginning of chapter 9 through chapter 9 into chapter 10 and what we're going to look at today, Jesus is inviting participation in his work. He's giving his apostles, his disciples, his early followers a sense of mission and purpose as they're desiring to follow him. And as we continue down the passage, it's very interesting as you read down through chapter 10, the 72 return from the work that Jesus had given them to do. And there's celebration, there's joy, they're participating in and comprehending and understanding the ministry of Jesus in ways that they never had before. They're seeing differently, hearing differently, they're even thinking differently. It's powerful, it's life-giving. There's celebration. And just as we might expect, the news of the transforming power of the gospel taking root and doing work in the communities where it's being delivered is followed by questions. Questions regarding the nature of the message and questions regarding the implications of the message that God had given. And so we meet one such man with questions in our primary text this morning, starting in verse 25 of chapter 10, there's an expert in the religious law who has questions for Jesus. Let's take a look at verses 25 to 28 of chapter 10. Now, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you understand it? And the expert answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So here we have a religious expert 
perhaps a scribe, and sometimes we have read hostility into this account, but we're not sure if he's hostile. What we know is we know that he's curious. He's inquisitive. There is a desire for comprehension, something Jesus has just praised in the immediate context of the passage. The questioner that comes, he regards Jesus as a rabbi, less than a prophet, and certainly less than the Christ. And in his response, it's very interesting, Jesus does something like he did in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan. Does anybody remember what Jesus used when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? Where did he go? He went to the Old Testament scriptures, right? And so again here, highlighting the reliability of the Old Testament scriptures, when the religious law expert answers correctly from the Old Testament, Jesus affirms his response. You see, the problem for the religious law expert was not his head knowledge of what the law said. He knew it front and back. In fact, for the religious leaders and the experts in that day, memorization and head knowledge was never a problem. The problem for them, what kept them consistently butting heads with Jesus, was their comprehension and their application of the law. Knowledge and comprehension are not one in the same. We can know a lot about what the Bible says without truly comprehending what the Bible is saying. Comprehension is when the head and the heart and the hands and the feet are working together in harmony as motivated by the Spirit who has provided illumination and guided application of the text we have studied. Now, don't get me wrong. We memorize scripture here on a monthly basis. Memorization, head knowledge, clearly vital components as well. We cannot comprehend and apply what we do not know. And so we study and we memorize and we commit to knowledge scriptures and passages that the Spirit will continue to illuminate and bring to light the comprehension and application of throughout our lives. It wasn't the expert's knowledge that was the issue in this encounter. Jesus affirms his knowledge. He actually says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. And in the second part, of Jesus' response to the religious expert, he highlights the expert's problem. It's not knowledge. He affirms his knowledge. It's application. Do this and you will live. You see, here is the problem. As a Jewish expert in the law, this man and his colleagues would have interpreted the word neighbor very differently than Jesus was using and applying and interpreting it. Among the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, Jesus would have been viewed as a man who had a very liberal interpretation of what the word neighbor meant. The scribes and the experts in the law would have interpreted and understood the word neighbor to only apply to a fellow Jew 
or somebody within their religious sect or community. A Samaritan person or a person from a foreign country who would have come to visit would have never fallen in to the category of neighbor. And once again, friends, we're confronted with the difference in the politics of the kingdom of God over and against the politics that are often a part of our governments and our religious communities. And so the expert wants to continue to justify himself, to declare his knowledge and his comprehension and the application of the law rightly. You see, for the religious expert, he has to bring the law into a narrow application so that he can fulfill it to its fullest extent. Watch what it says in verse 29. The expert, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? Jesus wants to show this man what it looks like to rightly comprehend and apply the law. And remember, as Jesus is going to enter into this parable, his disciples are right there with him listening. The same group of people who at the end of chapter 9 did what? Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven to consume them? They're going to hear this too. Not just the religious expert, but his disciples. Look at verse 30. This is how Jesus replied. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. But when he saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan who was traveling, came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine on them. Then he put them on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Now, many of us have heard this parable before. Probably all of us in this room have heard this parable before. And as I've heard this parable taught and summarized over the years, much has been made regarding the possible motives of the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan. Yet this is not the emphasis that Jesus is giving in this parable. Jesus' emphasis is on the proper response to a person in need. And in the actions of the Samaritan, we find within his loving response the essence of hospitality. 
embedded in this sacrificial act of love are essential components of hospitality. First, we have a Samaritan man who is traveling. He has a place to go. He has a purpose and a mission. He's not wandering aimlessly somewhere. And he stops. Because the need of this man who lays beaten and half dead on the road is more important than where he is going and what he has to do in the moment. He considers the needs of another, putting an other person above himself. He disadvantages himself for the advantage of this man. We also see wholehearted compassion. The text tells us that he became compassionate for him. And compassion is when love motivates movement. When the people of God and the community of God see a need and they're moved and they're broken and they're hurting and they're moved to action because of their love. There's a provision of care for the broken. The Samaritan's compassion moves him to provide immediate care. And what does he do? The text tells us he takes expensive and precious oils and he pours them on the wounds of the man. The oils would have been to soothe the wounds. But he doesn't stop there. He then moves to wine. Now, what would have wine done for the wound? Disinfect it. Right, did you ever pour alcohol on an open wound before? Whoo! Think of that scene from Home Alone when he puts the aftershave on his face. Little Bernie. And he takes his own oils. Oils, very precious, very expensive. Takes his own wine. Wine, very precious, very expensive. And he treats the man's wounds. There's a spirit of gracious generosity here to take this man and then to not leave him. Well, I did my part. I did my duty. I gave him some oil, soothed his wounds, gave him some wine, disinfected him, propped him up against the stone. He's good now. Next guy will get, take care of the rest. That's not what he does. It's not how it ends. He, he's gracious. He goes above and beyond in his generosity, putting him on his own animal, that would have meant that he was no longer riding it. He walks into town. He finds an inn. He takes out his own money. He recruits an innkeeper. And he ensures that the man would receive the time and the space that he would need to recover. There's a concern for the man's future well-being as well. Look at verse 35. This is amazing. Take care of him. And whatever else you spend, I will repay you. There was no limit. Hey, once you get to 100 denarii, let's just stop there. <laughs> That's all I got room for. Whatever else needs to be spent, spend it. And I'll repay you when I come back this way. The extension of care doesn't end when the person is no longer in his presence. He's going to move on. 
Very literally, in a very literal, narrow understanding of the word neighbor, this man would no longer be his neighbor. But he's still going to consider him as a neighbor. And then to recall that all of this comes from the heart and the hands of a Samaritan. A man from the very population that Jesus' disciples had just asked him if they could call down fire upon to consume. And when Jesus asked the religious expert in the law, which of the men became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, the answer is clear. Look at verse 37. This is an intelligent man Jesus is working with. The one who showed mercy to him. So Jesus said to him, go and do the same. And in his affirmation of the religious expert's answer, Jesus solidifies something that he has been preaching and teaching to his disciples from early on in his ministry. It's in all of the Gospels and the Sermon on the Mount. Such an important verse for us to keep near to our hearts and minds in our world today. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. I believe within that verse. We can hear and we can see the true meaning. Of this parable. Because you see the father has shown mercy. On us all. Parables are. Earthly stories that have heavenly significance. What's the heavenly significance of this parable? We were all that man, friends. Every one of us were that man that lay beaten, robbed, and left for dead by the side of the road. And Jesus was our good Samaritan. He cleaned us up. He got us right. He cared for us in our moment of deepest need. The Bible tells us that when he finds us, he finds us dead in our trespasses and sins according to the ways of this world. Hopeless and in desperate need. And the expert comes to Jesus. He wants to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? His focus is off. And as Jesus often does, he's redirecting and reshaping and reorienting the expert's focus on what truly matters. The religious expert's first question, it's self-serving. It's self-focused. For the law expert, for the priest, and for the Levite, it was all about themselves. Knowing the right things, remaining uncontaminated and free from any kind of ritual impurity. This was not... The Samaritan. The Samaritan, like Jesus, did not consider his own status or position or the status and the position of the man. Instead, he gave up much, laying down his own life for the good of another. You see, friends, mercy triumphs over judgment. And those who are truly justified and made right with God through Jesus should be the most merciful most loving, most compassionate, and most hospitable people on this planet. 
Friends, we talk about a habit of hospitality for people and communities that are desiring to follow and practice the attitudes and patterns of Jesus. We will find as we learn from the example of Jesus' life and ministry and we glean from the words he said and the things that he taught, we will find that hospitality is more about the condition of our hearts than the condition of our homes. And when we recognize the goodness and the mercy and the generosity and hospitality that Jesus has demonstrated towards us, I believe the Spirit will motivate us to desire to show others the same kind of love as we can. Now, there is a temptation here. I get tempted by parts of Scripture like this. And perhaps you do too. And the temptation is, well, I got to get busy. I got to get busy going out of here and being really hospitable and looking for all the opportunities to show hospitality and do hospitality everywhere I go and with everyone I run into, relying on my own strength and my own effort and the journey that God's placed me on. And I believe that in order to safeguard against this kinds of thinking, that Luke bookends the parable of the Good Samaritan with this very next teaching. Shock of all shocks, it's a situation involving hospitality. Take a look at verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. Jesus is receiving hospitality here. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he said. Perhaps as we continue, we should ask ourselves, who showed greater hospitality? Mary or Martha? But Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make. So she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part. It will not be taken from her. As I read this passage this week, I was intrigued by the passage in Matthew chapter 25 where Jesus is separating the sheep and the goats. And he says to the sheep uh, about all the things they did for him. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And do you remember their response? When? When did we do these things? Whatever you did to the least of these, you did for me, Jesus replied. And it's very interesting because there's opportunities all around us to love people this way. And sometimes, in that desire to get busy doing the work of God, we miss the relationships, the opportunities, the neighbors, and the people who are right in front of us. Friends, our most satisfying feast will always come as we sit, as we wait, 
as we listen and we learn at the feet of Jesus. And I believe, and I'm sure you as well know, that it's here that Jesus prepares us. He teaches us. He trains us. He invites us and he welcomes us and motivates us to reach and to care for the many different people he will bring into our lives along the way. Friends, we will do much better in pursuing and receiving hospitality, applying God's word in our daily encounters when we are truly learning and listening to Jesus from his word, finding ourselves at his feet. What qualities should exist in a Christian community that is committed to both pursuing and receiving hospitality? Well, it's been really an incredible year for our staff, for our elders, even for uh, many of you in our congregation in regards to neighbors and neighboring. Over the course of the past year, our staff has spent a part of our time in our staff meetings uh, going through a book called The Art of Neighboring. Our elders have spent time as a part of our sharpening discussions in our elder meetings going through the same book, The Art of Neighboring. You remember that as a congregation, as a faith community, we spent 40 days uh, this year praying intentionally and specifically for our neighbors. And then we had VBS here a few weeks ago, and there were a number of folks here We had over 100 children in the course of the week and many families that do not attend here on a weekly basis. Some who have never stepped foot in here on a Sunday morning. And as I got to meet them and talk to them and got to know them throughout the week, do you want to know the theme that came up regarding how they came to know about our VBS? To a T, every single one of them said this to me. A neighbor invited me. A friend invited me. From the church to come. And friends, I, I don't want to devalue the importance of an invitation. Of a relationship. Of our presence in another person's life. And we say this often here, and I truly believe it. We never know how Jesus might be using us in the relationships he places right before us to draw someone to himself or to draw someone into a community where they can come to hear the gospel and learn more about Jesus, drawing them to himself. And I would just encourage you, friends, keep it up. Keep it up. Build those relationships. Invite your neighbors. Invite your friends to church, to VBS, to the great giveaway, to other places where you're going, youth events and activities, whatever it might be. Awana kicks off in the fall. What a wonderful opportunity for children to be introduced to the gospel. As the Spirit is alive and active within healthy Christian communities, we should embody this habit of hospitality through countercultural commitments to demonstrating things such as mercy, compassion, humility. You know, it takes a lot of humility to receive hospitality. A lot of humility. Because not everyone is going to be hospitable in the same way. Generosity, sacrificial love, all of these components. A healthy Christian community should then be a place that's both welcoming and hospitable. Edifying and good for the not yet believing person 
to the newly believing person, to the maturing believing person of the faith. Friends, our communities, if they're healthy, should be made up of all those individuals. And for this to be true, in our faith community at CNBC, we'll need Jesus' help. This is hard. And, and I understand and, and I recognize that as we leave from this place, there is a lot of things going on in the world. A lot of hard, difficult things. And I recognize that in our world, there are voices that are pushing us further apart from people who are different. That live differently, that think differently, that act differently. And friends, this is the challenge of love in the world that God has placed us in. This is the challenge of neighboring and hospitality in the world that God has placed us in. The gospel isn't just for people we like and we get along with. It's not just for people who vote like us. It's not just for people that go to the same places that we go or do the same things that we do. The gospel is good news for all people. And all people need to hear the message of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. The Great Commission, friends, so powerful today to hear from Jason and Rachel and to have them with us and their family. And I know that they would affirm this as well. The gospel is not just for those who have been called to serve on the global mission field. But the Great Commission is a commission that's given to all disciples of Jesus. Every one of us is called to share the gospel. To show the gospel out in the way that we live. And I would encourage us, each of us, to leave here this week. And to demonstrate the hospitality and the love that the gospel that's transformed us demands. Believing that God can use it to transform others in the same way he's changed us. As our team comes, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the example of the Good Samaritan. And Lord, we we come to you acknowledging that a lot of times this is very scary for us. Sometimes, Lord, there is a fear of that which we do not understand and that which is different. It's hard, Lord. It's hard to be patient and kind and generous and humble in a world that's so loud in a world that's seemingly continuing to pull further and further away from you. And yet, Lord, in Jesus, you've given the lifeline that can reach into the darkness of any place and penetrate. There is nothing and no one that he cannot reach. And so, Lord, perhaps in the culture that we live in today, what we need is we need you to teach us how to be people who can speak true, can speak bold, and can speak love, and can be light in the places that you're sending us and the relationships you are sending to us. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful to shine for you 
and to live effectively for you. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.